There we go. Now, Christmas is coming. Christmas is a different type of holiday. Christmas is work. Christmas takes effort. How many of you have already put up your Christmas tree? How many have it up already? Okay, good. Nine o'clock, almost every hand went up, and I felt really bad about myself, so thank you. Um, you got to get the tree if you haven't already. you got to put lights on the tree. you got to put lights on the house. you got to go get presents. What do you have to do with those presents? You have to wrap those presents, right? It's a lot of work. You have to go to, anybody have to go to work parties? You have to do work parties at Christmas? You have to go and mingle with your coworkers and pretend like you actually like who they are? Yeah, I know. I, I don't know what that's like. Jerry's here, so... I love the people I work with. They're quite amazing. <clears throat> uh, so there's just a lot going on at Christmas. And the only thing we really have to endure at Thanksgiving is that, um, that awkward, um, weird, slightly off family member. Do you guys have any of those? Or at least we'll admit it. If you don't know if you have one of those, you're probably that, that family member. You might be that person. Um, uh, but Thanksgiving uh, is, is seriously a good holiday. Anybody agree? Yeah, I love it. Uh, I had a great Thanksgiving. I was in Louisville for Thanksgiving uh, with my family. And uh, I'll just say, it was, it was kind of nice to be with my family. I have a really, really great family. I looked around, I'm like, I don't know that we really have that weirdo. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, John, you're, you're the weirdo. I'm like, that's fine, I might be. But... Uh, uh, in no way does me saying that about my family have anything to do with the fact that I learned that some of my family members actually listen to these things online. And so uh, I'm just letting them know that I love them and that um, they're not all weird. Um, but alas, Thanksgiving is past and Christmas is coming. And around here when we talk about Christmas, we refer to Christmas as Advent. It's a season where we wait and a season where we anticipate and we prepare to celebrate a baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem, a baby that is our God um, and that will live among us and show us a better way to live and a better way to love. And as we look forward to next Sunday and the Christmas season, and as we start into our Advent series, I want to make you guys aware of something that we're going to be doing throughout Advent. Some of you guys received, hopefully all of you received, at least each family received a book, and I left mine. So can I borrow yours? Hopefully you all received uh, one of these, each family at least. Um, we're going to do something different this Advent. We're going to have each day of Advent, we're going to have a daily devotion. And it's going to be written by you guys. It's going to be written by people in our church family. And so each day we're going to have a daily devotion. Now, that's where you guys come in. We would love to send you a reminder each day of that day's devotion. And in order to do that, we would like you to pull out your phone I know, we're tech, oh, pull, you can pull out your phone, it's okay. Pull out your phone. And what you're going to do is you're going to text. You're going to send a text. If you don't know what that means, you can look for somebody in the room that's younger than 25 and you'll ask them. If you, we want you to text ZPC Advent to 39970. ZPC Advent to 39970. When you send that text, you're going to be set up to receive daily reminders of our daily devotions that we're going to do throughout Advent. You'll click on the link, you'll go to the devotion, and one of the ways you can participate throughout Advent is to share uh, with, you know, you can, you can comment on those devotions and share with each other, because the time that we spend in here, this hour on a Sunday, is not what we're all about. We are the church all seven days of the week, and so we want to be able to share with each other throughout the Advent series and, and sharing what that means together. So we'd love your thoughts 
and love your interaction with that. But before next Sunday, before Advent, that leaves us here today. And we're wrapping up our series in Acts, and we're going to look at our text this morning, which is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. So if you have your Bible, you can grab that. It'll be on the screens as well. Um, now, for some of you, I know that this might make you a little bit uncomfortable because you're saying, John, we're wrapping up our series in Acts, but you know that there's still 11 chapters to go before the end of the book. Well, if you have, if you're one of those people where you like to check off all the boxes or you like resolution, you can um, email Jerry and, and, and talk to him about that. I'm sure he would love to fill you in on the other 11 chapters of Acts. But this morning we're in Acts 17, chap- chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps reach for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting on Silas and Timothy. And he's alone. He's waiting. And he's in Athens, which Athens used to be the economic epicenter of the known world. It would be what we would think of as like our New York or London or Tokyo. But by the time Paul gets to Athens, Athens has kind of hit hard times, and it's not the economic power that it used to be. In fact, poverty is kind of set in in Athens. 
Now, even though it's not the economic center of the known world, it has become the cultural center of the known world. It's the place where people come and share ideas. It's the place where people come and share new forms of art, philosophy. It's the place where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle got their start. And so Paul is in Athens and he sees idol after idol after idol. And it was said in early first century history that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Every one of their public buildings, when they were built, they were given as an honor to one of their gods. And so Paul is in Athens, and this is a picture, we have a picture of the Acropolis. Paul is in Athens, and Paul went through the marketplace, the Agora. And he went through the marketplaces, and he heard people's ideas, and he shared his own stories. And it would have been on this lower, the lower part of this, this picture. And while he would have been hearing people's stories, while he was hearing new philosophies, he was doing it all in the shadow of the Parthenon. The Parthenon was this temple that was built to the god Athena. And he would have heard what people were talking about, what they thought about this and what they thought about that. And what Paul sees is a city where everything is dedicated to the rejection of God. Capital G, God. There was lots of gods to be found, little g gods. But Paul didn't see big G, God. And our text tells us that Paul became distressed. As he walked through the Acropolis, he became distressed at all the idols, all the images, all the gods. And this wasn't the kind of distress of like, oh, that's a bummer. This was the kind of distress of gut-wrenching, sick-to-my-stomach, saddened type of distress. And so Paul recognizes there's no Jesus in Athens. There are gods to be sure, but there is no God, capital G. He's distressed. He's sad. He's upset. And I thought about that for a minute, and, and for some reason, I, I, it kept coming to me, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, is standing and he's talking to a large crowd, and one of the things that he says to the crowd is, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And I often wonder why. Why is it that those who mourn are blessed? And I think about Paul. And how he might be upset and saddened by where he is and where he's found himself in the absence of God. And I think maybe those who mourn are blessed because those who see the sin of the world and their hearts are broken are seeing the world the way God sees the world. Those who mourn, they see the sin of the world and their hearts are broken. And so they begin to see the world the way God sees it. And so Paul is maybe seeing the world the way God sees the world. And he looks around, and he sees God after God after God after idol after idol. He sees gods that are honored in hopes of good health. That's not the, the, the Areopagus. <laughs> but he sees gods that are honored in hopes of good health. He sees gods that are paid tribute in hopes of acquiring wealth. He sees gods that are worshipped in hopes of rain. He sees gods that are worshipped in hopes of having lots of children. There's gods upon gods upon gods. And I don't know about you, but I read this text and I think about the Athenians and I say to myself, self, you're not much better than the Athenians. You're a lot like those Athenians. The people of Athens were into the latest and greatest new things. They were into the latest, greatest trends and thoughts. And they would get caught up in those things. They would talk about them. And I can't help but think that so many of us are in that same place today in our own culture 2,000 years later. And I know I am. I find myself in that place often. I chase after that latest, greatest thing, 
the latest, greatest trend, and I find time and time again that it really gets me nowhere. I chase and I chase and I chase. And, and the question is, why, why do we chase these things? And I think it's because we think that somehow if we acquire this thing, this latest, greatest thing, that it's going to make our life better than it is currently. Now, a month ago, almost exactly a month ago, October 27th, I contemplated waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning. I was going to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning so that I could order something. Does anybody know what I might order? An iPhone, I've been told you're not supposed to call it a 10. That's what I've, yes, X. iPhone X, well done. I was going to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning so that I could order the iPhone X so that I might be one of the first people who got it. Now, as much as I like the latest, greatest new trend, I am also very lazy. And so I had no desire to wake up at 3 a.m. to order the iPhone X. So I waited until I woke up at 6.30 to order the iPhone X, which then I was bummed about because I had to wait two more weeks before I got it. But today, I have it. The iPhone X. Now, don't, don't, don't clap about that. Don't, don't encourage... Don't encourage me. Um, Now, there's two reasons why I did that. One is because, like I said, I wanted to chase that latest, greatest trend. I wanted to have that latest, greatest piece of technology. The other reason I did it was because I'm an idiot. And I think we find ourselves in those places often. Because here I am on November 26th in front of you all holding this, and my life is no better because of this piece of plastic. We chase after that diet, we chase after that fast, or we we go to that yoga class or that spin class. We chase after that certain kind of meditation, or we read that book because of the life-changing technique to simplify our lives that it can give us. We listen to a certain podcast because it's going to enrich our life. We go to that conference, or we go to that workshop. We buy that appliance, or we buy this new piece of technology in hopes that it's going to change our lives. We chase after what we want. And better yet, we chase after what we think we want. What we hope that that thing is going to do for us. And we do the same thing with spirituality, the same way the Athenians were doing it. We have a God for this and a God for that. And all these gods, all these idols, are an attempt to gain some kind of control. Because that's what we really want deep down. All these idols, all these gods are some kind of attempt to domesticate God and to have him serve us rather than us serve him. And if I'm really honest and transparent with you guys this morning, my heart is really, really good at making idols. My heart is an idol-making machine. And even worse than that is my mind. Because my mind can make an excuse for every single one. My heart is an idol-making machine, and my mind is an excuse-making factory, right? We rationalize our sin, we rationalize our idols, and the idols that we worship are a cheap but powerful substitute for God, aren't they? Having money, having power, having success... Or better yet, maintaining the appearance that we have money or power or success. Those things become intoxicating. And why? They're intoxicating because when we have it, when we have power and money and success, we like to wield those things. And when we don't and we pretend that we do, 
We like what we think others think about us. And oftentimes, other people don't even really care. The problem is that there's no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of success that's going to bring the kingdom that Jesus talked about. There's no amount of money, power, or success that will bring heaven on earth. And so, in the gap, we create idols after idols after idols. Gustave Flaubert. It's a good name, isn't it? Gustave Flaubert, a French author, said this when it comes to idols. He said, never touch your idols. The gilding will stick to your fingers. Never touch your idols. The gilding will stick to your fingers. The longer we hold on to our idols, the more our hands are stained. And the more we domesticate the God that created what Paul said, the world and everything in it. The longer we hold on to our idols, the more our stained hands domesticate a God that doesn't live in the shrines and the statues and the idols that we built for him in the first place. We chase and we chase and we build idols and we have our God for this and we have our God for that in hopes that our lives might just be a little bit better than they are now. And from what I can tell and from what I know of God, God is far less concerned about making our lives better than he is about making our lives new. And he doesn't make our lives new to just leave us there. He makes our lives new so that we might go and make others' lives new because we are called to build his kingdom. We are called to bring heaven on earth. Author and theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, Jesus' death and resurrection, which is what Paul is teaching or talking to the Athenians about, is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. And I think Paul knew this as he walked through Athens. This was his task, to bring this new kingdom from a heavenly place to an earthly home. And Paul sees all these gods, lowercase g. He sees all these gods that the Athenians have, but he doesn't see God, capital G. And what does Paul do? This is one of my favorite parts. What does he do? He doesn't start a Bible study. He doesn't grab his soapbox and his bullhorn and take it out into the Acropolis and say, you guys are going to turn or burn. He doesn't quote Old Testament scripture. He doesn't even talk about Jewish traditions. What does Paul do? He meets the Athenians where they are. He talks with them. He walks in their marketplace and he shares his story and he hears the stories of others. He looks at their statues and their idols. He listens to their poets and he reads their authors. And when he's invited into the Areopagus, he talks to them and meets them where they are. He talks about the gods that he's seen that they worship. He talks about their poets and their philosophy. He uses what the Athenians know as a starting point to tell them his story, the story of a risen Jesus. Now what's fascinating to me, Paul, who's not only a Jew, but he was a Pharisee and who knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards, not one time in his speech, in his sharing his story to the Areopagus, not one time does he quote Old Testament scripture. Not one time does he bring up Jewish tradition. And I think it's important for us to stop right there for a second and think about that. Because a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 13, Paul shares his story with a group of Jews. And Paul has a lot to say about Jewish tradition in Old Testament scripture in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, 
When Paul is sharing his story, he talks about Israel, Egypt, Canaan, Judges, Samuel, and Saul, David, David's father Jesse. He quotes the Psalms and he quotes the prophets. He basically gives them a Jewish history lesson that ends in Jesus being the Messiah that they were looking for all along. But he doesn't do that in chapter 17. In chapter 13, he's talking and sharing his story to Jews. In chapter 17, he's sharing his story to Greeks. If Paul had used the method that he used in chapter 13 and that in chapter 17, the Greeks would have had no idea what he was talking about. Now, why that I think, I think that's important for us. The method changes. The way we tell our story changes. But the message stays the same. Do we have the screens working? There we go. Think of it this way. The method changes, but the message stays the same. This is a painting that we're all familiar with. Who is this? The Mona Lisa. Now, I want you to just take a minute and think about, if you were to leave here today, and on your way home, you were given the task of picking up a frame to put this picture in, what kind of frame would you get? Think about that. You got it? Okay. Now, if I were to ask each of you right now what frame you came up with, I would be willing to bet that we came up with a pretty broad range of options uh, for frames when it comes to the Mona Lisa. I'm sure there's some of you who thought, maybe let's make it a simple black, black frame, right? It's just a simple, plain frame so that the picture can speak for itself. And some of you guys were like, no, that's just too, too ordinary, so we've got to go with something maybe, maybe gold, something more ornate. And then there, there are purists, I'm sure, among us who are like, no, 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 can't have anything like that. That detracts. Let's just have a good, nice, plain, wooden, simple frame, right? Now, for some of you, um, you might think, you know, this... It just needs more pizzazz. This thing, it's a kind of drab painting. So let's go with something bold. We're going to go with a bright red. I don't know what, what that is. But some of you don't like red. Some of you like maybe purple. Yeah, there we go. But for some of you, maybe that's not going to do it. And so we're going to go to, what's next? Yes. Some of you, maybe, maybe you need a little bit more. You're like, this is, there should be more in this painting. So we're going to go with the oval frame with butterflies and flowers. That'll do it. We like that one. Now, if you're like me, uh, I grew up in the era where Polaroids were just, my family had books and books of Polaroids. And so for me, I thought maybe let's put, it, let's put this kind of frame around, that kind of iconic Polaroid frame. Um, but I know for some of you, that's not your, not your thing. Maybe you're a child of the early 90s. Um, this is very reminiscent of Saved by the Bell type, type thing going on here. We've got different shapes and colors and all this stuff. But for maybe, for some of you, I've heard in our church family, some of, you, some of you guys like cats. And so for you, some of you, I'm sure you're like, you know what? We just need to go all out. We need to get, we need butterflies, flowers, and we're gonna, just going to put a big old kitty cat in the corner. That's the way I want to see the Mona Lisa. Now, I share that and exaggerate, obviously, a little bit. Hopefully no one wants to put that around anything, um, much less the Mona Lisa. But hear this. Regardless of what frame you had in mind, the fact remains that the picture stayed the same. We have the luxury to change the method, but not the message. And that's what Paul's doing in chapter 17. The method changes, but the message does not. The way in which Paul shares his story of a resurrected Jesus with the Athenians is not how he shared his story of a resurrected Jesus to the Jews. The message that he was sharing, Jesus... Son of God, came to save us all, was crucified, died, and rose again. 
That message stays the same, but the method of how Paul delivers the message changes. Now, what does that mean for us today? The method changes based on who you're trying to reach. And so I'll say this this morning. If you don't like, if you don't like the music here, I'm sorry. If you don't like the way I dress, although today I don't know that there's much you could dislike, in case you haven't noticed. But if you don't like the way I dress, I'm sorry. If you don't like the carpet or the chairs or the color of the walls, I'm sorry. These are all methods. And it's always good to be reminded that the methods are up for grabs. The question we as Christ followers and as His church should be asking is, are we true to the message? If we ever stray from the message, we should be having conversations. Paul used different methods at different times to reach different people. And it's so easy for us to get hung up on methods, isn't it? We have a message, but we have to be flexible in our methods. Because the minute the methods become the message, we've lost all the weight and all the gravity and all the importance of what the message carries. The minute the way we worship musically is as important as the message we're trying to communicate, that's the same minute we've lost the true value of our Jesus. The minute the color of the carpet and the story we're to be sharing are the same importance, that's the same minute we've lost what it means to have a God, capital G, God, that cares for us each uniquely and created us in His image. I like being comforted in the fact that we have a capital G, God. And I like being comforted that we have a message that we can frame however fits our story because we each have our own unique frame. We each have our own unique story. And what is the story that we're to be telling? We're to be ushering in redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, aren't we? We're to be bringing healing to a broken world. We're to be proclaiming love and trust to a world that only knows fear and suspicion and exploitation. And if there's any question that Paul leaves us with in Acts chapter 17. Now remember, he's waiting on Silas and Timothy. He's there alone. And if there's any question he leaves us with in Acts 17, it's, if not now, when? And if not us, then who? We're to be sharing our stories where we are and where God has us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the ways in which you remind us of your son, Jesus. We're grateful for the ways in which you play out our lives. The ways in which you show yourself to us. in the ways in which you've created us unique, but all in your image. And so, God, this morning, let us be reminded that the idols that we build, the idols that we create, are all lowercase. Created us unique. Created, and we have a God, capital G, who has created us unique, 
created us in your image and who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our lives. It's in your son's name. Amen.